Two and a Half Admins, episode 131. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your usual Clara plug is how to catch a Bitcoin miner. Yes, this is part of our new sysadmin series. And we have a story about a sysadmin who manages a, a cluster of machines for a university and catching someone trying to run a Bitcoin miner on their database cluster. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Until further notice, think twice before using Google to download software, writes Dan Goodin for Ars Technica. And there will be no further notice, says Jim Salter, formerly of Ars Technica. This is a story about malvertising in Google ads. And honestly, it really shouldn't be anything new to anybody who's in the profession or even a serious hobbyist, the idea that the things that pop up in Google ads frequently lead to malware. That's been a problem for at least a decade. It is becoming a worse problem than it has been in the past, but don't click the ads. Don't click the ads. Don't click the ads. Yeah. Google's tried harder and harder to make the ads look more like the search results. Remember when they used to be over on the side in a different color? Instead of blending in as the top results. Ah, oh, those were the days. Because I remember the first time I, I heard of this happening was like someone asked for a recommendation. And I had them download VLC to play some media files. And then they were complaining about all these ads it had. I'm like, it's open source software. It's not going to have ads. What are you talking about? And they're like, turns out they Googled for VLC and clicked the first result, which was an ad, which gave them a version of VLC compiled full of ads. Luckily, that didn't hurt them as much as these ones, which are going to take over your computer and so on. Although looking at the one of the examples in the article here, if you just Google search for Thunderbird, the second result, the first actual search result is Thunderbird.net, which is the actual Mozilla website for downloading the Thunderbird email client. The ad is for space. <laughs> which is doesn't even vaguely look like Thunderbird. You can see that it's inspired by the name Thunderbird, but it's it's not like one letter off. It's just, if you are, need glasses and don't have them on, maybe it would look like Thunderbird. I don't know. Come on, Alan. Don't you want space Thunderbird? <laughs> You're the reason we can't have any fun, man. It's like got two ends, and then it's just like Thunderbilp.space. That's not Thunderbird. Just be glad that you can still actually see the real Earl in the Google results. Because that's the other trend has been, you know, all the app makers and, and website builders trying to camouflage Earls from you because Earls confuse and frighten the normals. So why should you see that it says, you know, google.com slash whatever, whatever in the address bar? Just just have it say Google. Good enough. And uh, we, we see the same tendency to elide away the, quote, technical bits, unquote, from the normies who are confused and frightened by them. And I think a lot of the time they do that proactively. Like nobody has actually come to them and said, I'm confused and frightened by Earl's. Somebody just decides that like, oh, well, people will like it a lot better if it just says Google instead of saying Google.com. And next thing you know, you look in the address bar of your browser and you're seeing alighted and, and obfuscated things in the place of Earl's. You're no longer sometimes in email clients, you know, seeing full links. Uh, just everything gets hidden further and further away from you. Yeah. And then next time it's not going to say Google. It's going to say Google. And you're not going to notice. The article goes on and uh, how some of these different apps that you're downloading are going to use the NT query information process and so on to hide the malware from you and a bunch of things like that. The article did a bunch of digging and shows where a bunch of these servers that are hosting this stuff are actually hosted. 
where you'd expect Namecheap, Azure, DreamHost, Alibaba, anywhere where you can stand up a website quickly. And it really points to a quote they have at the bottom from one of the domain experts at the Spamhouse project. You know, for email and for spam detection, we purposely look for domains that were registered in like the last two weeks. If this is a brand new domain and it's sending me email, there's a good chance it's spam. How is Google not applying that same logic? If there's a website that is trying to claim to be NVIDIA and give you drivers to download that you're going to run as administrator on your computer, maybe if the domain is less than two weeks old, we shouldn't accept an ad from them without a human checking it first. Particularly given, again, that these are not search results. These are ads. Google took money for these. I hope we can all agree that Google is profitable enough that they don't get to hide behind the, oh, but that would be expensive to check the things that look like super bogus. No, you're making plenty of money, folks. If you need to hire some people to actually look at the ads that you're accepting for money, then hire those freaking people. Well, in particular, even if Google tries to claim they can't look at every ad that closely, I'm like, okay, but how about brand new accounts using domains that are fresh? It's almost exclusively going to be spam, crap, and malware. You know what? They expect me to look at all the ads that closely, so I don't see why they can't. I'm not getting paid to see them. <laughs> exactly. But you could so easily script that. Just do a who is query, find out how recently it was registered, and just set a rule if it's within the last two weeks, let's say, or three weeks. Oh, sure. For, for, for that one particular metric, yes. But I'm saying that's not sufficient either. I'm saying you are taking money. You are making an absolute freaking mint off of that money. Do a better job. Yes, looking for brand new domains. That Okay, that is a thing that does help somewhat. But it's not hard for spammers to pick up, you know, abandoned domains for nothing. Somebody lets a domain name lapse and they grab it and it's been registered for 10 years. Well, now what? Can they use that? Is that okay? Blah, blah. And that's still something that technically, well, yeah, you can probably get at that and you can find out the last time that the record was modified and whatever, yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, again, this is just one particular tactic. I don't think it's so much to expect that ads that claim to be offering you some of the most popular software on the internet should probably get tied in some way like to the actual vendors for that software. And if it's not obviously them, then that should flag a query. Now, again, you know, if it's like some little piece of software nobody's ever heard of that, like you wrote and you have on your site and, you know, you and your 10 users love it very much. Okay, fine. I don't expect Google to know about that. But when somebody wants to download VLC or Microsoft Visual Studio or GIMP or Creative Cloud, or, I mean... Yes, I think you can look for ads that want to promote these incredibly popular things that everybody knows about and make sure they're legit. Yeah, and they've got enough machine learning algorithms and stuff to uh, do the job there. There you are wanting to let them back off the hook again and, oh, the AI stuff is fine and whatever. They are welcome to try to reduce their headcount somewhat with that, but I'm not going to back down off of this. No, you are making the fucking money do the job. I don't want to hear any whining about it being expensive to hire humans. No, not having it. All I'm saying is that if they don't want to hire humans, they've got the technology already and they're just not using it properly. I don't know that it's that simple. Should they be doing a better job with that? Yes, but again, that kind of boils down to whether or not they're actually spending the expensive human effort on managing it. 
ultimately, I mean, it is open warfare between Google and, you know, the, the malvertisers and or just the people who are trying to maliciously game the index. It has always been open war between search engines and the people who show up on those search engines who are willing to try to game the algorithm, game the system. And it requires constant input and monitoring and adjusting of your side of it. When they figure out a tactic that works, you have to recognize it and, you know, build a way around that. And that's not being done to a significant degree. And again, Joe, I, I think that you're right that, yes, they could be doing a lot more with the AI stuff. They just need to be doing a better job of managing that and actually keeping up with what's going on in the war. And they're, they've fallen asleep at the wheel. But again, I just I don't want anybody to lose track of that. You do not get to whine and hide behind. Oh, but that's expensive. So we only use the algorithms. And if they don't work, that's not our fault because humans are too expensive. No, you're making money. Yeah, and I think you're, you're right there in that. A lot of these tools, like we said, looking at domain age and so on, can be used as an input to be like, this one needs a closer look by a human, but all of it needs at least an eye graze over it quickly. Like, even if you're giving them a batch to do at once, looking for the completely obviously terrible ones would be a start. The ones that are just so obviously bogus, it's ridiculous. If those are getting through, then everything is, and they're not even trying. And Jim's right. Like they, if they're going to take all this money, then they have to at least try a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if, if on Take Your Kid to Work Day, somebody's 12-year-old sat down and was asked to search for Visual Studio and the ads that immediately pop up are mal- malvertising, which they will be, like, yeah, I mean, that's that's not like, oh, you know, how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to notice? Nah, not only are you not doing enough, like at this point, given that we're talking about malvertising making it to the top that way, it's not just that you're not doing enough or that you didn't notice. No, you didn't care. You're okay with collecting that money and you don't want to do things that might mean less money coming in. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com 25A. Comcast gave false map data to the FCC and didn't admit it until ours got involved. So... In an effort to increase access to broadband, the government has a pool of money available to get internet service providers to provide access in areas where it doesn't exist. And the way the scheme for this works is the the ISPs give data to the government about areas they service, and that decides what portion of that pot of money they get. But it turns out Comcast has been lying. So yeah, we service this area over here and this one over here, when in fact... Nobody in that area has Comcast, and if they try to get it, Comcast tells them, no, your address doesn't even exist, or no, we don't service that area. But they're happy to tell the government they do and get paid for it. 
And to be clear, it doesn't require high-level sleuthing to figure this out. I mean, when we say that you discover that you can't actually get Comcast service in this area, we're not talking like you put in the order and two months later they came out and they said, well, we looked and we did a survey and we can't get the cable here. And yet, like those things do happen. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about areas that Comcast is claiming to provide service. And if you literally just go to Comcast's own webpage and ask for service at that address, it immediately tells you invalid address, which is Comcast's special way of saying we don't service you. This is to tell you that your address is invalid. <laughs> well, yeah, in particular, is like there's an FCC website where you can be like, hey, I need internet. Tell me who services here. And uh, Comcast says they do, and we're paying them for it. And it's like, actually, no, I can't get Comcast. It's like, well, then what am I supposed to do? Just have no internet? And this in particular really bothered me because I know there's a similar program here in Canada. And I know some people that run one of these ISPs that does community broadband. And when they have to compete with the big providers and the big providers are basically cheating the system, they never get the wrist slap for it. But if one of the small providers ever slips up and claims something that isn't quite right yet, or they used to service there, but something happened or whatever, they get come down on like a ton of bricks. And why does it always seem to be different rules for the companies like Comcast? It's almost as if lobbying is a thing. Yeah. And capitalism is the problem as usual. Yeah. I'm sure the FCC is just as bad, but obviously the CRTC, the Canadian version of the FCC, is usually a, a rotating chair of former telco CEOs and, and executives. Now, there's a, a new person's been appointed to the CRTC like last week. We'll wait and see if anything happens, but the largest and the third largest telcos in Canada are trying to merge, and the government tried to block it, but then the other part of the government's like, no, let it happen. Hmm. Between the four largest telcos, they already own almost every TV station, radio station, newspaper, and sports stadium in the country. What else is there for them to take over? It might be very different if there were requirements to have people on the boards of these regulatory agencies that were not, in fact, just leaving the board of two or three of the largest major telecoms. Maybe you require the presence of folks who are on the board of some small regional telecoms. Maybe you require the presence of some people who are industry analysts who have not <laughs> worked for one of the giant major telcos with a revolving door. But we're never going to do that, right? Let's do some feedback then. We had a couple of emails about private TLDs, both from anonymous people. The first one was, you recently had a discussion about some trivial reasons not to use made-up TLDs. In addition to it being out of spec as per the networking RFCs, it's also worth noting that the new Handshake DNS standard relies on arbitrary TLDs as its foundation. If this standard is ever adopted, these will be far more common. Please, sysadmins, use .lan or a subdomain you own. And the second person said, in the case of a non-global TLD that is being used internally, wouldn't it require creating a self-signed cert that I would then have to deploy to every device that connects to my internal website? If you're getting SSL certs for, for example, domain.lan, I would love to know how. Every time I've searched online, I've come to the conclusion that this isn't a thing. So the big thing here is that's what Active Directory is. It's you making up a self-signed certificate and Windows deploying it to every one of your devices so they trust it. Yep. That is what joining an Active Directory domain is, is basically accepting that Active Directory domain certificate as being legitimate in everything it signs. 
So yeah, that's what it is. It just the distributing it to all your devices is kind of handled by Windows instead of you having to do it yourself. But you are absolutely correct that you cannot go to an SSL cert vendor and buy a cert for a private TLD or a raw IP address or anything else that is not a proper registered at the global who is registry domain. I will say in defense of the whole like dot obscene thing, I was kind of coming up on a blank for a good example of that. And the reason I picked that apart from I just have a weird brain is that it's not going to conflict with anything that you're liable to care about in a business. I absolutely would not recommend that you do something super generic like, I don't know, dot computer or dot Apple or, you know, some nonsense like that that is liable to conflict with something that you will care about. But my business is JRS systems. If I put dot JRS for a TLD, I cannot imagine realistically that somebody is going to register that as a real global top level domain and there will be anything on it that I give two craps about. The vast majority of the internet is not anything that any one person really cares about. And the real concern, you know, with potential namespace collisions is you don't collide with something else that you do actually care about. So, like, I don't know, if if you're running a webcam shop, maybe don't use .obscene because maybe there will be some overlap there. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, up till I think it was about 2015, it was possible to get some of the SSL providers would provide you certificates for, like, .local or .internal. But the CA Browser Forum dictated in November of 2015 that, no, you can't do that anymore. And for very good reason, if you stop to think about it, because the whole point of the certificate vendor is they're authenticating that you are who you say you are. Well, no, they usually are validating you own the domain you say you do. That's the method that they use to do that. Yes. And my point is that if you were using a private, not globally recognized TLD, then you literally aren't making any verifiable statements about your identity. What happens when I want to go to Symantec or whoever and buy a certificate for JRS-S.local and then somebody else comes along and wants to buy the exact same certificate? How do you handle that? How do you know which one is, quote, valid, unquote, and which one is not? That is literally the point at which you generate your own certificate authority, which, to Alan's point, that's what a Windows domain is in part. You've got a private certificate authority that issues certificates, and it automatically configures all the machines joined to the domain to trust that private certificate authority so that you don't have to individually accept all those certificates as valid. It can check with the domain controller, which says, yep, that's a good cert, or no, that's not a good cert. You don't need Windows to do that, but one way or another, if you want goofy snake oil certs that are validated by you yourself, then the right way to do that is to spin up your own CA, which is not that hard with or without Windows, honestly. Yeah, if you do need to do it for internal stuff, on Unix, there's a tool called SmallStep that does a really nice job of it. Or use EasyRSA. If you've ever used OpenVPN, the proper way with like an OpenVPN server that issues its own certificates, the bundled-in service that handles that for you is EasyRSA. That is actually a separate package that's installed as a dependency. You don't need OpenVPN to use it. Up until recently, that usually came in as part of the OpenVPN package itself. But for the last four or five years, even if you install OpenVPN to use EasyRSA, that's been split out into Debian or Ubuntu into separate packages that are installed separately. So you can just install EasyRSA and use it if that's what you want to do. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, 
the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Benedict says, I realize that you guys heavily lean towards ZFS as a file system, so I have two questions. Number one, from an end user's point of view, it seems similar to ButterFS. I know you're not very fond of ButterFS, but for example, the Fedora people seem convinced enough to make it their default file system. Could you explain the reasoning behind still preferring ZFS? And number two, I'm mostly a desktop Linux user and would like the possibility to have snapshots I can boot into so I can roll back in case of breakage and the like. Since I don't have tons of time to read up on all of this, I prefer a set and forget setup if possible. Is ZFS a good option here? Or would you not recommend this for such a case at all? We've spent a lot of airtime talking about ZFS versus Butter, and I don't want to rehash everything that we've ever said before. So let's just kind of do a real quick breakdown of, of why Alan and I still strongly prefer ZFS. Now, in Alan's case, I mean, he's, he's kind of a cheater. He's a FreeBSD guy, so Butter's not really an option for him. Of course, he's going to prefer ZFS. Unlike Alan, as somebody who mostly uses Linux in production, I truly have had the option of using either. And I have attempted to use Butter in trial production. It just bit me really hard. In its current state today, Butter is basically fine as a single disk file system. It, in my testing, has some pretty significant performance issues, but it has much more significant performance and reliability and maintenance and just the way you use it issues when you use Butter as a full-featured entire storage stack, meaning it manages multiple disks that you uh, you know you assemble into arrays. Uh, Butter RAID one. Which really, Butter RAID 1 or Butter RAID 10 are the only ones you should even think about using. Butter RAID 5 and Butter RAID 6, even Butter's own senior developers say do not use. And when a file system, senior developers say don't use this feature. For the love of God, please don't use that feature. Beyond that, even if you just waved a magic wand and made Butter perform equally as well as ZFS and made it equally as unlikely to eat your data... I would still strongly prefer ZFS because Butter is just kind of more of a fractured mess to work with from a sysadmin's point of view. You can put snapshots kind of anywhere on your file system you want to, which makes it very difficult to figure out what's going on in an inherited Butter system. On a ZFS system, you can just say ZFS list dash T snap, and you'll get all the snapshots every time. You can't do anything weird with them to hide them. On Butter, when you take a snapshot, a snapshot is a special version of a subvolume. The subvolume can be located anywhere. In fact, you could have one Butter subvolume named sub1 and another one named sub2. You could create snapshots of sub1 and store them as child volumes underneath sub2 and vice versa. If you wanted to, nobody is stopping you. 
whatever your idiot idea is, you can absolutely accomplish it exactly as your fevered brain dreamed it under butter. I find that frequently developers think this is a great thing. Sysadmins like myself tend to not enjoy that so much because, again, we need to be able to approach and maintain systems that came from somewhere other than, like, I did this one night at two in the morning. For me, I think the biggest one is just ZFS has more than a hundred developer years more effort into it. And the polish of that really shows when you try to look at ButterFS. Very much whole bits of it are just, we'll get to it someday, it's not finished kind of thing. And ZFS just doesn't have that. It's just a lot more work went into it. The problem ZFS was trying to solve was we want storage to be more like RAM. When you want to add more to the computer, you just plug it in and it works. You don't have to run RAM CTL and do a bunch of stuff to to tell the system that you give it more RAM. You just plug it in and it works. And it just compared to other volume managers, it just made a big difference. And so for yeah, for me, it's the track record and just knowing it's going to work the way I want it to work. And the fact that for me, ZFS is also much more portable. I can run ZFS on FreeBSD or Linux or Mac or Windows, and my one disk is going to import on all of those, and it's still going to work. Yeah, on ARM, x86, whatever. Yes. ZFS is one of the only file systems that's by Endian. You can move it to a Sun or PowerPC machine where bits are literally stored the other way around in RAM, and it'll still work. Most file systems will work one way or the other, like UFS and EXT and so on, can work in Big Endian and Little Endian. But if you format it something Big Endian, you can't mount it on a Little Endian machine. ZFS was designed specifically so you can do that. And it was designed specifically so I can take the disks out of one machine, put them in another machine, and just import it and have it work. Anything involving a RAID array doesn't work that way anywhere else. And so ZFS really made my data more portable and just more secure. It is also worth saying that, Jim, unlike Alan, you are a GPL hippie. Your software is all GPL, so you, in theory, should be biased towards ButterFS and should shun ZFS. In practice, I absolutely was biased towards Butter and away from ZFS. When I was first trying to use Butter in trial production, I confidently expected and told people that I thought Butter was going to eat ZFS's lunch and ZFS was going to end up getting shuffled off to the side because Butter having a proper GPL license and being able to integrate directly into the Linux kernel and Linux enjoying the position that it does is by far the top dog in terms of what's deployed everywhere. I thought it was going to be a no-brainer. And Butter disappointed the absolute crap out of me, license or no license. Ideology about licenses is great, but keeping your data safe and secure and maintainable and reliable and performant and all the rest, like that's really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to file systems and volume managers. And on to Benedict's question about can he do a ZFS on Linux thing and expect that to be good and kind of set it and forget it and go from there? The answer is yeah, pretty much. I find that most of the folks asking that question, they specifically want a ZFS root That's more difficult on Linux than it is on FreeBSD. If you're a FreeBSD person, you're going to get ZFS on root by default. Like you have to go out of your way to not get ZFS on root with modern FreeBSD and say, no, 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 I want you to use UFS2 for this, which you probably shouldn't do that. But in the Linux world, it's a little bit more difficult than that. The best option right now is a project called ZFS Boot Menu. Go to zfsbootmenu.org. 
The easiest installation for ZFS boot menu is going to be when you're setting up an Ubuntu machine because you can literally just git clone a single shell script and run it and it will install the Ubuntu version of your choice on top of the ZFS root with ZFS boot environments so that you can boot from an earlier snapshot if you need to, if things went wrong, you know, all this good stuff does it all for you. If you're on a different distro, not on Ubuntu, ZFS boot menu supports just about every distro you can think of, but the process is a little bit more manual. You drop to a shell in the middle of the live installer for your distro of choice, and you run a bunch of individual commands manually. But again, once all that's done, you end up with a ready-to-use, reliable, it-will-keep-working system. Mm, you do have to deal with DKMS, though, potentially. That's an excellent point. If you're on a non-Ubuntu distribution, you're going to be using DKMS ZFS, which means there is the potential that you get a kernel upgrade, something went wrong in the DKMS process, and it did not successfully build a new version of the ZFS kernel module, and therefore the system won't boot on that kernel. However, that's a lot of the point of the ZFS boot environment. Folks who naysay the issues with DKMS and booting will frequently point out, well, that's why you go into your grub menu and you boot on the older kernel. Now, frequently, that wouldn't be an option for me when this stuff happened to me because my system was getting full of old kernels and I deleted too many of them. <laughs> and, and, you know, then I would have to repair it. It would be a little bit more obnoxious. But with the ZFS boot menu set up, even if you went through and you deleted all of the kernels that would boot your system, you didn't delete all the kernels that would boot your system because they're in the earlier snapshot and you picked a boot off of that snapshot in ZFS boot menu. When it wouldn't just boot normally, then you go, oh, well, let me boot from yesterday's snapshot instead. And that fires right up because it's right there and it's entirely intact just as it was yesterday. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Bill says, I have heard on several occasions that email is a terrible way to receive notifications, which I agree with, but it has never been mentioned, as far as I can recall, what better ways there are to receive said notifications. I would appreciate your thoughts on the best notification methods for applications such as Nagios, etc. There are a couple different options, especially push notification and services that do things like that. And also, for specifically Nagios, I know Jim has some recommendations for apps. 
Absolutely. I'm an Android person and I've been using ADAG for many, many years. It is a free and open source Nagios client that you can install directly from the Google Play Store or it should be on F-Droid or, you know, whatever other major repositories you use if you're a uh, Phelan Whiteley type and want nothing to do with Google while still using Google phones. On iOS, I have considerably less experience, but I have installed EasyNag for uh, two or three people who wanted access to their own monitoring network, but uh, only had Apple stuff available. EasyNag is not free, but uh, it's nine bucks and it has done the job well enough that nobody's complained about it. I can't really tell you what it's like to use it because I haven't personally, but I've installed it on several people's phones and it clearly saw all the things it was supposed to be monitoring and none of the people actually using it have said, hey, this client sucks. So until I hear something better, that's my recommendation. There is also a Nagios mobile client directly from the Nagios themselves. And that is all that I know about that. I didn't know it existed until I went Googling right now to remember the name of EasyNag. And I will say that, you know, if we're talking in a business production environment, and there is any kind of budget at all for, uh, you know, sysadmin and ops stuff, grab a big screen TV, hang it on a wall, get a cheap little mini PC that, you know, you've just opened to the Nagios web interface and sit that sucker up there in kiosk mode, monitoring your vital infrastructure so that literally every time you look up, like if something's red, you're seeing it staring you in the face. That is an absolutely fantastic tool. And I get that you might not want to build that level of command center in your house. Hell, I don't have one in mine. But when I work at a larger business where it's staff that are supposed to be on top of these things all day long, that is just a no-brainer. For ours, we did one based on the compute stick. It's literally like the size of a Chromecast, although a bit bigger. But it's just literally like on the end of an HDMI port, there's just a whole computer with Wi-Fi. And we powered my old TV in our base, the office for Scale Engine when we used to have an office pre-COVID was my old TV and one of those compute sticks. And it ran FreeBSD and fired up Firefox and had the Nagios page with some sound effects if it needed it. And it showed Nagios and uh, our own dashboard that was showing like total, like how many gigabits per second of, of bandwidth was being pushed out from our network. And it would just refresh constantly, you know, it made us feel like we had a knock, like in the IT stuff you see in movies where there's like, you know, a, a bunch of people at NORAD sitting in front of all these big screens or whatever. <laughs> I will say also, in addition to, you know, I, I do firmly believe that a big screen kiosk hanging on the wall is an incredibly useful tool for somebody whose job it actually is to stay on top of systems all day long. But above its direct utility and, you know, how good a job it does is keeping very visually in the forefront of your head what the health of your network truly is. Above and beyond that, like if anybody ever comes into your space, whether you're talking about like C-levels in your own organization or whether like your C-levels like to give their potential clients like a tour through the facilities or whatever, people love that. I mean, the oohs and ahs you get when people see your real-time monitoring of your stack up there, like on the screen full-time on a wall, it's big time. It's worth it for that alone. Yeah. For the price of one large lunch, essentially, you could set that up. Yeah. The kind of lunch that you feed somebody that you're doing that kind of a sales job to, it might be cheaper than the lunch. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jarrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. 
We'll see you next week.